We are uh, almost done with July. Let's be grateful. Dear Lord, thank you very much for this year going by and the blessings we've had in it. We'd ask that you would lead us to new ones in our lives before you. Thank you for the word this morning. In your son's name, amen. Um, Corinthians 9 is one of those spots in my record. I wish I had computer skills because you could make an app that a lot of pastors would benefit from. You just punch in what passages you're dealing with and it would keep record of when you preached on this passage. Well, the first part of 1 Corinthians 9, never, ever. It's a blank spot. I have a notebook three-ring binder with every chapter listed, a little space, and every time I've preached in a chapter with its verse markings. And some chapters are just, you know, countless times preached in Ephesians, this, that, or the other thing. And you can see this, you can look at it and see suddenly there's this white spot called 1 Corinthians 9. Now you say, why? Is it a really sexy passage? Why no? It is about paying your pastor. <laughs> so you can understand my you know, embarrassment about those sorts of things. And you say, why even yet? He's not starting till verse 14. That's right, I'm skipping over all of that awkward stuff about... Now, what's beneficial about it is not... It's not that it's... I think it's good to, to skip over it because Paul himself in the passage skips over it. He mentions it, he teaches on it, and says, you know, I don't make use of this. But the benefit of knowing that that's what's going on is because an awful lot of the bad times in church history have been the professionalization of the clergy. People who, and I think there's a, you know, a case to be made for churches and ministries uh, supporting their staff and the like, but s eventually people start to, you might say, enjoy the quality of life it is to be in the ministry paid to talk to people about their problems. Far better for a minister to learn first that he should work for his money and provide for his own ministry. That's what St. Paul did. And uh, it's not wrong to be supported, but it's, it's good for the soul of the minister to, to be uh, providing for his own um, obligations. But there's something, as, as Paul moved on, this is not really the point this morning of whether or not pastors should or should not accept a wage. But what Paul does with that and then recommends to us this other circumstance and other blessing. Okay? So you know the first 14 verses, 13 verses. Well, it ends with this verse 14 right at the top. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That sums it up, right? But, verse 15, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing this to secure any such provision. It's not this fishing for the complement of the, of the paycheck. I would rather die than have everyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. 
Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not for of my own will, I'm entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Now, we have this obligation with the gospel. You have been called out of darkness into marvelous light by the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and ascension to the right hand of the Father, providing you with forgiveness of sins and life eternal. And consequently, because you're a nice person now and not a complete tool, you want to tell other people about it because it's a good thing. They're sinners too and they need to be saved. Uh, there's an obligation to that. You would do it about anything that had that level of benefit. But Paul also sees a reward. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my preaching I may make the gospel free of charge, not making full use of my right in the gospel. Now he, he lets you know there's a benefit of doing it for free. Now, you say, what could we possibly take home from this that I should go to work tomorrow and tell my boss, well, I'll work for you for free. That's not the, the real thought. The idea is that, that this reward creates a circumstance in this next passage, this next uh, paragraph. Which you can have recommended to you. Paul illustrates it with what is happening in him in the ministry, and then he recommends it to you. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Now you're probably familiar with this passage where he says, I've become all men, things to all men. And we apply it in reasonably good circumstances. But as part of his argument here, he says that in making it free of charge, the, the role of the gospel has come into me, making me a slave to it and a slave to all men. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. <coughs> and this is a key verse, I would say, for your thoughts this morning. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Now, the gospel, as you know, is grace itself. You don't have to preach the gospel to get the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. If you win enough souls to Jesus on the, you know, on the last day when you go up to heaven and you take your Bible, because you've got to show up with your Bible, and they, they, they examine the spine of your Bible to see how many notches you have cut in it. Or sometimes you can stamp, you know, non-Christian symbols as the many souls you won. How many souls did you win for Jesus? And they'll let you in if you won ten. Purgatory, ten or less, if there were a purgatory, and there isn't. Well, it would be obviously that wouldn't be the gospel itself. There would not be the grace of God. If the blessing he's talking about, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings, he is not talking about forgiveness of sins and life eternal. That was given to you for free. Jesus Christ paid for that. 
So in his slavery to the task of winning people, in his giving himself over, there is a there's an available something that Paul wants you to take part in. Even though it enslaves you to others, that's in quotes, it's not doing what they want, you become as they are to win them. You find yourself being very much in the ministry about other people. In the ministry, the Christian life is such that, that you have more freedom to be about other people because that's what you're called to do. But you, those of you who are not in the ministry know that when you minister to someone, it's probably when you have stepped across that line and became about them you, in some way. You had them over for dinner, you, you uh, got to know them at school, whatever it was, you became about them. Then he tells you in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, you're saying to yourself, okay, there's some blessing that we're competing for and that only one of you is going to get it? That's even if, that's if just this church is competing, let alone every other Christian in town or in the world. Is it, is it a blessing that only one gets? Well, I don't think so, because Paul wants the blessing, and he wants you to have the blessing, but I should be having a relationship to it that shows that I am devoted aggressively to getting it. Because he says, every athlete exercises control in all things. If you want to obtain the prize that is this blessing, if you want to obtain the prize that is this blessing, athletics, the Olympics, are a good way to look at things. What people go through, Lewis took a tumble, um, um, you watch these people give their lives, uh, Elena was telling me a couple nights ago, what she has to trim off her splits, I guess, or her time rowing to make the junior Olympic team or some team that's intermediate before the junior Olympic team. Uh, she has to trim 13 seconds from her time for the 2,000 meters rowing, which I don't know if you ever tried to run faster than your absolute best and you have to take actual seconds off your time. It's impossible, but she's going to be working at it. And they have to work very, very hard to do it. They exercise self-control in all things. Those of you who wrestled when you were young, making weight, how do you go about making weight? A lot of throwing up. Or a lot of eating heavily to get up to a, uh, the weight class you need to get at. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. There's a blessing out there that Paul is saying is worth comparing to an athletic pursuit. Because he's recommending it to you that the way of going about getting it, like the training of an athlete, but with a far greater gain. 
you have to expend an effort. There's so much in Protestant circles because, as you know, we're Protestants. We looked at our salvation, the grace of God, and saw that it, by faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast that you can't earn your salvation. You can't come here enough, you can't give to enough old people, you can't preach the gospel enough to get into heaven. It's because you're just not good enough, period. God has to be kind to you. God has to be merciful to you. But this is a different portion. To share in the blessings of the gospel, effort has to be expended. Well, verse 26, he says, I do not run aimlessly. You're supposed to run that you may obtain it, this trophy. Seems to involve self-control because the value of the trophy is far higher. And he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, I, I don't work out. We knew that. I have, in times past, in my youth. But nowadays, I just listen to people talk about working out. That's enough. There is a... In our family, my wife's the fit one. And she's fit because she generally runs up and down three flights of stairs carrying laundry baskets under both arms and, and cooking for 16 every evening. Keeps her fit, generally fit. Probably her aerobic fitness is good, probably her physical fitness, her, what are they called, arms. There's a general fitness. Paul's saying, mm, we're not dealing with general fitness. I've heard people who work out talk about leg day. Now, what is that? Well, it's the day, I suppose, it's when something awful happens. They cut your legs off at the thigh and reattach them at the end of the workout. Well, somehow you can barely walk the next day, but you're focused on the thing that you want to focus on. Paul doesn't focus aimlessly. He knows what he's working on. I'm beating the air, and I, I need to have that advancement to this prize, which we haven't really talked about what it is. This blessing is something you can expend an effort and get and Paul wanted to be sure that he, after recommending this blessing, wasn't disqualified himself from getting it. Because he didn't expend the effort. Just because he was an apostle doesn't mean he gets everything for free. Everything gets handed to you. You, you get that impression about more, more uh, left-leaning uh, political persuasions that believe that someone else is supposed to pay for all the stuff in your life. Well, someone isn't. But that doesn't mean it isn't nice to get a, you know, a new Lego set from Grandma at Christmas. Gifts are nice. God has given you gifts, and God has some expectations. 
And the gift and the expectation blend together to produce a blessing. If I go about this, as Paul recommends, you will share in the blessings that are, you might say, incumbent to the gospel. I know a lot of people who are saved. Of all sorts. All sorts of economic sorts, all sorts of classes, all sorts of races, all sorts of nationalities, successes and failures as believers. All of them God has forgiven. All of them God has taken to glory. Do you want to be those that share in the blessings that are available <coughs> to your life? I want you to know, chapter 10, verse 1. I want you to know. There's a typo on the left-hand side. It's supposed to say, now why, not know why. Now why does he want us to know? I want you to know, brethren. He was talking about himself there for a while. Because he was the minister and they were the church and, and he was talking about that icky thing about fundraising. Then he said, okay, no, not for me. I got stuff to do. I got stuff to do for the gospel. I want to have this path for me wide open so that the blessings of preaching the gospel, so that the pursuit of my life in Christ would equal something that I really want to be rewarded in. I don't want to be aimless. I want the trophy. Now he tells I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. This is speaking of the Jews wandering in the wilderness, waiting to be allowed into the promised land, illustrating, saying that we had ancestors who went through this and participated in these key moments that I am going to use as a metaphor for Christianity. Nevertheless, in bold, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What? I want you to know, brethren, that in this, that this is effort, it's not like, well, you know, I just want to be sure that when I die, I'll go to heaven. What do I have to do? Well, some churches have you walk the aisle, sing just as I am 15 times until your emotions break down and you come down the aisle. And so you have to get your name on a list, join a church, get baptized, whatever it is, this benefit, this blessing, this effort, this good, Paul is worried about being disqualified from it, and he wants you to be worried about being disqualified from it. I want you to know, brethren, that even though these guys went through all these things that we're going to use as a metaphor for the faith, God was not pleased with them, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. You want your Christian life, and I think we're talking about Christians here, and I'm not a Christian who believes you can lose your salvation. You might, but I don't believe that. So, um, you, can, you can rest assured, okay, I'm not, I'm not in any danger eternally. The fires of hell are not licking at my pant legs. 
but overthrown. There's a, what is it, a Beatles song? Instant Karma? Instant Karma's gonna get you. Is that the name of the song, though? Yeah. Okay. You've seen, and you know maybe you've enjoyed some Instant Karma. When your life got to reflect immediately, you're stupid. You did something stupid, it landed on you like a ton of bricks. Overthrown. Overthrown in the wilderness because God wasn't pleased with you. Now, he just said that. We're, 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 we're trying to pull you toward this blessing that Paul's talking about, about the blessings of the gospel apart from the blessings of salvation. Um, uh, the blessing of salvation. And it seems that he's encouraging you to think along with him, not to think separate from him like, oh, you're the church that is supporting me in my pursuit of spirituality. Too many churches want to pay their ministers to be the spiritual ones around so they can go talk to them when they need it. That's what we pay you for. Paul seems to want us to join him in this pursuit of the blessing being a concerned about that our effort is expended precisely, aggressively, for the prize, and that we be concerned about being disqualified. Like I said, I'm not an athlete. But I could still remember learning to do the running long jump where you had to toe the line, you got to hit the line as close as possible, and you get disqualified if your toe went over the line when you made the jump. And how much that mattered, oddly enough, when you were there and you were doing it. What you would do that would disqualify you. Now he, he tells us, and this is the benefit of what's called context, if you read through a passage, you see what Paul's doing with some familiar verses. This is all coming out of his, I become as all men, that I might by any means win some. He says, verse 6, Now these things are warnings for us. Not to desire evil as they did. Got it? Those things that happened, that displeased God, that disqualified them, that overthrew them in the wilderness, was their evil, and God wanted you to be warned. Because you need to have, in this effort to train yourself for this blessing, you need to be self-controlled. You need to not aimlessly function, but function with an aim, function with a direction. These are warnings. What about? Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to dance. Oh, by the way, I have, I don't hold this view, but if you're a Baptist, you know how they say, why do uh, Baptists not like sex? Might lead to dancing. Okay, now, that's a joke because really they're concerned about dancing because it might lead the other this is a biblical case for that, right there. And rose up to dance. That's a quote out of Exodus. The word dance is the word play, is the word laugh, is the word 
that was used for Jacob being caught um, smooching on his wife by Abimelech, king of Gear. And he's like, what? This is your sister, right? No, no, it's your, his wife. And it was obvious. So there's a connection. The word dance there really is actually connected somehow to um, sexuality. But I don't want that to occupy you for the rest of your thought time this morning. Okay, Just, just put that for later. I'm going to look it up. Put it for later. But right now, one, I want to know if you're familiar with all these. There's four passages. There are four problems. I have them on the side here. Numbered, one through four. With the references. So you can look them up at your leisure because Paul told you these things are warnings for us. Don't be an idolater. And you spread your feet apart and you put your hands on your hips and you look square at the church building and the pastor and say, okay, I won't be an idolater. Because you think, that would, what an easy thing to not be, right? There's no temple of Baal just out of the street. It's a warning. That's a warning here. He's saying, well, yeah, probably Corinth, you know, a lot of pagan temples. Yep, there were. We must not indulge in immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's in Numbers 25. We must not engage in, indulge in immorality. So, got idolatry? Sex. Say, okay, those are pretty wicked. You betcha. We must not put the Lord to the test. Uh-oh. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's like something a little bit more at home for Christians. Family home evening filled with putting the Lord to the test. You're basically complaining. This is in Numbers 21. This is where the Jews are going, oh, why did you take us out of Egypt? It was good there. What are you doing this for? What's this? Why are we wandering around the desert? It's hot. I don't think to eat. Don't like what's going on. You would have done it differently. And God decided, I'm going to send some snakes. They're going to bite them. They're going to die. A lot of them died. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That is in Numbers 16. That's a situation where the Jews, we're not grumbling about being nothing in Egypt anymore, but Korah a, uh, was challenging Moses for authority, and it's called Korah's Rebellion, and the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his family. And the rest of the Jews are horrified that Korah's lives didn't matter. That's a popular reference right there. Jewish lives matter, they were saying. Why did, you, why did this happen to Korah? Why does it, this could happen to us next? So a plague went through the camp and, and it happened to a lot more. They grumbled. Now, 
That's probably a sure that that's not everything you can do wrong, right? But what is Paul telling us? I want you to know. God was not pleased with the Jews on the ground of these four things in the wilderness, and he gives the passages, and he t- lets you know where the warnings exist. Tells you to not be like that. Now, these things happen to them as a warning. He told you that at the beginning. These are warning stuff. They happen. That they happen is a warning. But they were written down for our instruction. Ever think about that distinction? You've heard warnings. You heard what happened to so and so? Daniel and Taylor were telling us a bit back about a friend of theirs who got hit by a truck on a motorcycle, lost his leg. None of us really know him, but every mother here is considering it a warning to her male offspring to never have a motorcycle because they are of Satan and your child's leg will just fall off if they buy one. It's a warning. You heard about it, right? Let that be a warning to you. Ever hear that? That's different than a history being written out in which the warning still exists, but the history means I can go read it and be instructed. Have you ever moved with a friend's foolishness? A friend tells you a story of something went bad, and then you say, well, that's a warning to me. But then he gives you all the details. And you go, now I know why you're an idiot. Now I know why it's so stupid. Now I can actually study your folly. They were written for your warnings. I mean, they were, they are, they're there for your warnings. And they're written down for your instruction. You know what that means? Since you're not supposed to be doing this aimlessly, and since you're supposed to be running that you may obtain it, since you want to find the self-control that you need to get whatever this blessing is, you're going to have to read those passages. I'm sorry. I have them here. You can take the notes home. If I find any notes on the pews, you have the passages. You can go read them. Because you want, I trust, to be instructed so that you're not aimless in what you're doing, so that God would not be displeased and overthrow you in the midst of your pursuits, your life, the thing you decided to do. I want to be, I want to know, because Christianity is not, you know this coming to all souls, is not a list of rules of goodness. A lot of you might wish that it was, so that you could go, okay, got the list, haven't done any of them. Christianity is about understanding your God. And that's what he argues with this. He says, this is an effort, this is a practice, this is pointed, this is leg day. And we're going to learn about idolatry. And people who said, well, good, I could check that one off because I don't even have to think of, hold it. You do. Because right now, in evangelical Christianity, there's a huge walking away from the faith into the worship of icons, pictures of Jesus. It's huge. 
And icons, if you've done any work with them at all, are idols. You say, but it's a picture of Jesus. Now, it's also pictures of any other saints and the Blessed Virgin and whatever else. But the fact that it's Jesus doesn't change a thing. You're not supposed to bow down and worship anything. And you know the passage that you, if you went back and read it, Exodus 32, 4 through 6? Guess what? The idol was of Jesus. Well, Jesus wasn't around in that. The idol was of God. When Aaron makes the golden calf and they bow down to it and rise up to dance, he tells them, it's Yahweh. This is the God that led you up into the land of Egypt. This is the Lord. And he uses the name Yahweh. So it was a good Christian idol. It was a good Jewish idol. It was the idol of the God that they professed to worship. But it was an idol. You don't think you need to be instructed? I know people who are going to Greek Orthodoxy who need to be instructed. Somebody was trying to tell me that I, you know, the veneration of icons wasn't idolatry. So I walked over and I got the Oxford book, the Dictionary of the Christian Church, looked up iconography, read the definition, and there was silence. Silence filled the room. Because it told them exactly how the Greek Orthodox treat icons. They worship them. They kiss them. They burn candles to them. I don't mean, I've said this to you before, I was driving to church one Sunday morning, this church, and from our house to this church, there's a Catholic church in between, St. Mary's. There's a statue of the Blessed Virgin out front. And there was a man kneeling in front of the statue, praying to the statue. You say, well, he was really praying to the breast of the Virgin, which is bad enough. But that's what the pagans do. They don't think the ba that Baal is the statue. They need the physicality. What have you learned? What have you learned about idolatry? Because it was written down for your instruction. Not just to warn you that bad things could happen, that you could be led astray. Dear Christians, I know, led astray by idolatry. Let alone sexuality. Might not have been the rampant orgiastic bacchanalia that was going on in Judah at the time, Israel at the time, where Phineas had to run someone through with a spear. But you know perfectly well that our society is collapsing under the weight of just the discussion of people's private acts. Marrying this to that. Whether guys who think they're girls can go into girls' bathrooms. For heaven's sake. And the fact that I might get arrested in five years because I said that was wrong. You don't think we need to be instructed on this? You might want to go back and read the passage. Add more passages. Upon whom the end of the ages has come. Feels like that, doesn't it? Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Because he just told you the Jews 
holy, they've been through all these religious experiences with the rest of the Jews, and you say, I've been through everything with my church. I did all the stuff. I got the baptism. I got the Jesus. I got the walk the aisle. I did whatever your church does. Take heed lest you fall. You have to be paying attention. Thinking you stand is not standing. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what can you, you can't presume stuff about your life. You can't just say, okay, I got Jesus in my hip pocket. Christ is my co-pilot. Whatever, if you put enough Christian stickers on your car, somehow in some sort of magical way, like a rabbit's foot, Jesus will look out for you. Don't think you won't fall. Even though falling is entirely avoidable. He says, it's not like, oh, you know, kind of, kind of we're all broken. You ever hear that from teachers? We're all broken. My son was talking to an, a, a pastor wannabe in Jersey City who was trying to plant a church in Jersey City. His wife had just left him, and he was trying to plant in Jersey City. And so Davis asked him directly, well, what's up with that? And the guy said, well, you know, I think from my brokenness. Well, it actually asks that you not be broken to be a pastor. It asks that you be blameless. Husband of one wife who cannot take care of his own family. How can they care for the household of faith? That's what it says. Now, our brokenness is right there. Just like you got to watch out. The Jews went through all this too and God was not pleased with them and they were overthrown. Don't think you stand because you could fall that easy for not, the basic thing of not paying attention to it. Not paying attention that you are not boxing aimlessly. You're not boxing the air. You're training specifically for righteousness. And righteousness is something we gain as Christians not by following the rules and not by the magic of the Holy Spirit in the sense of it just made you good and you don't have to think about it. But that you have the path to holiness by thinking about it. That's what Paul's recommending. He is saying, I want to share in his blessings, the blessings of the gospel, <coughs> which set you free from sin and free from the law. Well, the question then comes up, well, how are you going to be holy? It opens up the door that thinking and pursuing the thought about the faith, looking for, looking at all sin, it says every sin that comes is not common. I mean, is, is, is common. It's available for study. We don't even have to look at the passage in Exodus. We can look at all the people we've known who are idolaters or idolatry in history. We can study sin. And we also know that not only you uppityness might get you falling but brokenness is not presumed because God has, is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability so everything you send in you had complete ability not to send in everything 
Now oh, this isn't true. You can say, I don't think Paul was right there. The temptations I faced were a lot stronger than I was. Because I felt to them that you had to be overwhelmed. No, remember, temptation is an appeal to your will. It's not a force that knocked you down. It's an appeal to you to agree with it. He provided a way of escape so that you could endure it. If you wish to endure. But those who don't want to endure, don't want to bother, just want to have the grace of Jesus carry them through. Yeah. There are always going to be those. Paul's recommending to the Corinthians that they not be those. So he says, therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. Now they faced that all, like I said, Corinth, they faced it all the time. I speak as to sensible men. Okay, this is what I'm telling you. Your sensibility and this argument, he did it earlier in, in the chapter 6, when he, when he argues about going to prostitutes. And you say, uh, this is a family church, Evan. We don't talk about prostitution. The Bible did. And he doesn't say, don't go to prostitutes because it's wrong. He didn't say that. He said, don't go to prostitutes. Don't you know, don't you know that anyone who joins himself to a prostitute has made himself, who is a member of Christ, members of a prostitute? And then quotes the creation of woman <coughs> about it. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He reasons with you. He didn't just say, the church rule about prostitution is no. What more do you need? Whatever strength you could get. No, but Christianity is us engaging with our spirit-led lives that our love and our peace and our joy is, is handled in a way of understanding our faith. He says, I speak this to sensible men here in this passage. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he argues why you should shun the worship of idols. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. That's what he wants you to understand. You look at idolatry and you start to realize there's more for me to think about this because the reasons drive me. The reasons are the means of escape. The reasons... Help me understand how the temptation is not beyond my ability. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He does the same argument he did with prostitution. He said, you can't be a member of Jesus and a member of a prostitute. Don't do that. This is what you're not, you're not understanding. So the blessing, if you want to say, what is the blessing? We think idolatry is something like Cthulhu and the elder gods with tentacles coming out of their face and 
and babies being sacrificed in flaming hands. Yeah, that's demon worship. That's, that's idolatry as I understand idolatry. That's why you look back at the Exodus 32 passage because you find out it's a calf and it's the Lord. It's not Molech, it's not Baal, it's not Chemosh, it's not one of the other gods that are nasty, obviously demon-filled. But Paul's arguing on both fronts. You've got idolatry that is faithful to the meaning of Israel, and you have idolatry that's like Corinth. But do you understand why the physicality may be demon-filled? You cannot partake the table of the Lord or the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That just laid out a discussion for you. Something for your mind as sensible men and women to consider. Once you've looked at the instruction, you don't just consider it on your own sensibilities. You go look at the instructions regarding it. The things that you know are true. Because since this last verse is in here because of this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And he quoted the same thing in Corinthians 6 about going to prostitutes. This is the same kind of walk. Your blessedness, your life, where God does not overthrow you in the wilderness, is because you took the time, the effort, to train your spirituality to understand what God was supporting you in. He's supporting you in your fight against sin. But since it's about your will, not about overcoming you, but overcoming your will, you have to understand what's going on. You've got to express yourself in sensibility. You have to judge what is said here. You have to go look these passages up sometime this afternoon or tomorrow. We need to understand and live. We can't just collect our liberties and keep doing stupid stuff. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Help us understand. In your son's name, amen.